Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. You're listening to a podcast from the Word. Hello, good evening, and welcome to the Islington to this special Word in Your Ear Smash Hits retrospective special. We've been passing uh, the time waiting to start up here, having that classic conversation between writers about books. You know, because the famous cartoon is the two writers meeting each other. Is it? Go on. Pick up your microphone. Yeah, it's, two, it's, two, it's two writers. But I can remember this really well. Actually, it was the late 60s. And they both had roll neck sweaters. And they're at a cocktail party they're smoking cigarettes. One says to the other one, I'm writing a book. And the other one says, Neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, we genuinely are. So I don't know why we're saying this. But uh, uh, Silver's no. right in the Do middle. Silver's in the middle Wait, of a no, book. I'm going to not. Can anyway. we plug this book before it's even been finished or, or published? But Silver's writing a book, a majority of which will be about the Smash Hits era, I imagine. Well, it started, off, large it started off quite small and has expanded to about ten times the size that it was. Um, it's only supposed to be one chapter. Mm, oh, right, okay. but, but now it's about seven. So well, we look forward to it. So <laughs> we're joined by two former Smash Hits alumni, as we are, Mark and myself, Sylvia Patterson and Mark Frith. Let's test the acoustic by giving them a good round of applause. <laughs> Uh, I think Mark, Mark was saying, looking out at people, he said, what sort of people are here? And I said, well, people have got nothing better to do on a Tuesday night. Is it Tuesday night? Yes, Tuesday night, than, than uh, you know, think about the late lamented smash hits. So a bit of, a bit of instant research here. What you see on the screen here, I hope you can see it, is, is the first issue of smash hits from 1978. Did anybody buy that? Really? Oh, no, no. It's David Holly, isn't it? Where do, you, where do you live, David? He's not supposed to have bought it because that was only on sale in the Tyne Tees television area because it was a test issue. Hence its enormous value. So I might have been visiting my cousins up north. Oh, there you go. There but I've go. got it at home. You've got to admire the cover story, which is Plastic Bertrand. Is on, I have a copy. I have a, one of these editions in the roof, um, locked up in a very secure uh, vault. And uh, the cover story is not a, um, an interview with Plastic. 
uh, <laughs> or even a, a, a photo session. It is, in fact, ten copies of Plastic Bertrand's first album to be won. As you can see, that's the cover story. You find out and you can win one of one of Maybe you did. I don't know. Did you, did you apply for one of these collectible items? No. That's it. Just a bit, a bit of quizology here, actually. If you, I don't know if you can read it. If you look at the, the song lyrics... It says the worst of the 21 top singles, including Substitute, which must have been a reissue of the Who's Substitute. Clouds. And there's a substitute. Isn't it? Sorry, okay, fine. Okay. If the kids are united. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) If the kids are united was by. (laughs) Shab 69. We're just trying to find it. It's dipstick research, this, you know. Just trying to find out your age profile. Uh, <laughs> Last Dance, anybody remember that? Donna Summer. Donna Summer, okay, very good. Uh, identity? Polystyrene, very good. And Boogie Oogie Oogie, A Taste of Honey. Which, and I think the, the, wasn't, wasn't the chorus of that, we've got to get up on the floor, we're going to Boogie Oogie Oogie, till we just can't boogie, boogie no more. No more. Yeah. So you all read that issue and digested the, the information in it. When you were on Smash It's, you had to rigorously check those song lyrics because if you left one of those oogies or boogies out, you would be bombarded oh, with complaints. Kids they were, quite kids rightly. They would, they would petrol bomb your office. So that's September 1978, 25p. That is... Now, when is that, Mark? That's the last issue of Smash Hits. About 2005. Yeah, about 2000 and... Feb 2006. And it cost, David, to you, 250 of your English pence. Really? Had it gone up? £2.50. So, anyway... Where is Preston? I don't even know who he is. Is he a member of Clouds? He was the lead singer of the Ordinary Boys. But... And this is really interesting, actually, how it morphed into a celebrity magazine because he wasn't on the cover of anything to do with his music. He was in Celebrity Big Brother, as was oh, okay. Chantel, who's his future wife. Oh, God. Um, and, and that just shows how it morphed into um, a celebrity magazine, effectively. So Stars Exposed. All, it, was, it, was, it was a celebrity magazine. And when you're a magazine that's so diverse from the original purpose, that's probably when you have to <laughs> close. Also, it's, it's so tabloid, isn't it? Yeah. I, but can't, it also, I can't imagine the Nick Kershaw feature back in our day be, having a headline, 100% shocking, inside my mental mind. <laughs> I don't think it wouldn't have worked, really. A little bit aggressive, I think. There's a bit, I mean, I, there's no, no uh, disrespect to anybody who's working on it at the time it closed, but there's a certain desperation going on here, isn't there? There's please God buy this issue. Yeah. Is that fair to say? <laughs> Absolutely. The number, yeah. More, more sales than the cutty sock. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Well, we're going we're to try and give, the, to give this evening a little bit of a, a, bit of a purpose, a bit of a, bit of a structure. Uh, we've asked our guests to, to answer questions about their experience at various different stages in Smash Hits. And so we started off by, by talking about... We've asked them to talk about the first issue that they worked on and because I'm the most elderly here, I go first. Okay. And so my first issue I worked on was Brilliant. Lena Lovitch in, on March the 22nd in 1979. I think that may have been the first fortnightly issue because the first ones were monthlies. Lena Lovitch, inside my mental mind. What it was. <laughs> <laughs> Just a bit of background for those who were interested, that this magazine was an idea thought up by Nick Logan, who'd previously been the editor of The Enemy, and left IPC, and EMAP, who were 
regional publisher. They said, if you've got any ideas, come to us. He had three ideas. One was a magazine called Up Country that did one issue and then closed. The other was a magazine, the second was a magazine that became the face many, many years later that they decided that they couldn't deal with. And the, the third was the simple idea of taking the old traditional songwords magazines that used to buy Woolworths and just doing it better and charging more money. And that was Smash Hits. Which Disco ne- 45. Which ne- well, Disco 45 was one of the incumbents. There. I think it was Disco 45 that was chart songwords, isn't that? Disco 45 was probably the... The best-selling pop magazine at the time, but it was, it was just lyrics. And this, Smash Hits, narrowly escaped by a whisker being called, not Smash Hits, but Disco Fever. Wow. Which we can all laugh at now, but in 1978-79, it was John Travolta, yeah, you know, whatever, it was Grease Fever, wasn't it? So that, as I say, was, uh, I think, probably the first, uh, the first fortnightly issue. I joined, uh, and it had just, uh, it had a small office in Great Pulteney Street in Soho, and there was Nick, and there was Steve Bush, of whom more later, and there was Bev Hillier, and then there was me, and we just had to chuck it together as best we could. And, uh, and the, the youth of Britain in those days were so easily swayed that a free button badge and a sticker <laughs> was enough to get them beating a path down to, down to the newsagent. Okay, so that was my first one. So we move on to Mark's first one now. Which I brought in with me. Oh, this, wow. this, yeah, you put that picture in there. Yeah, this is a picture. No, um... sorry, girls. He was married <laughs> even then. <laughs> this is from a session which actually uh, somebody just sent me, all, all the outtakes, which are very, very funny, actually, of, uh, of you and me and Steve Bush and... Uh, and uh, Tom Hibbert and everybody. And the picture of me, I, I think uh, I've got a, a scarf out and I've got a fan on me and you can see a hand holding the scarf in a kind of heebie-jeebies style. But that, that, I love that picture on the left, actually, because it's so of the time, you know, uh, there's little film canisters at the bottom. And actually, you can't quite see it, but on the, on, to my right, it seems to be cropped out now, is a Lulu promotional coffee mug, which is a key, a key piece of equipment. And also the filing system, the cardboard filing system is amazing. But that was, the, I just had, I bought this issue up on the train, actually. I was looking at it on the way in. And it's a little bit, it's it smash, it's trying to kind of uh, get its voice. But there's one thing I really noticed in the letters page, I'm going to read out. It's very funny. It's just two letters. And one says, um, if I can get enough light, it says, uh, uh, Could you tell me all about the American group REO Speedwagon? Thanks, Angela. <laughs> and, and the black type underneath says, Certainly, Ange. They're awful. <laughs> next. And the next letter says, why don't you do something on the wonderful and talented Bucks Fizz? They're number one in our hearts and charts. This is from Fred Fizzer Watson in hearts. And the black type says, because they're even worse than REO Speedwagon. <laughs> next. And this just goes on. So I thought that showed some promise, actually. <laughs> some attitude. But that's, that's my that's that's my, that's Vaughan to lose, isn't it? It's Vaughan to lose. The late Vaughan to lose. Late, what was it called? Uh, is Vic is Vic here? Is Vic there? Is Vic there? Vic there. Which was a terrific record. Yeah, well, and uh, you know, so they had their moment in the sun, and they were on the cover of Smash Hits. So that's when when's that mark? Nineteen eighty one. Fourteenth, nineteen eighty one. Nineteen eighty one, and by then it's gone up to thirty five p. You know, rank profiteering already. So. Okay, and we move forward. I think now Sylvia. This actually wasn't my first issue because I cannot find... I I, I have no idea which issue actually was. I think it might have been because it was February 86, I think. 
that Bono was on the cover with some dreadful woman from um, Clannad, the voice of Clannad. Do you remember? I can't remember her name. Um, This is the first one I have from 1986, which was my year. Um, And I think the logo was not long changed at that point. Is that right? Can you you remember? I think it might have been... It's a fairly new logo, although I'm relieved to see you haven't called uh, the lead singer of of, uh, Simply Red Amply Fed, (laughs) as I think we used to. (laughs) So that's that's a relief, anyway, for him. Don't you think he looks like Malcolm McDowell from uh, um, A Clockwork Orange? It's terrifying, isn't it? It is, A Clockwork Orange on the cover of the hits. (laughs) And a classic quote there, when the bomb drops... People should be dancing to our records. <laughs> well, he outlived the bomb, didn't he? He saw that scare off, didn't he? Yes, exactly. But, so the young, but the young were absolutely petrified of the bomb in those days. Yeah, they were. We were. Frankie we, goes to Hollywood all day. It was, it was all, all about the bomb, bomb wasn't, wasn't it? Wasn't it? It was yes. all about Tried the bomb. Banish a lot of the time. Wasn't it? Should have done a free nuclear shelter, whatever. So. And you look at the other names here, you've got some of the loads of names that are still familiar nowadays. Boy George, Madonna, Peter Gabriel, Pet Shop Boys, Status Quo, The Smiths. Seek, seek Sputnik. Put up there rather hopefully, I think. You know, I somebody thought, did did anybody buy one of their records? Oh, fantastic. I God. think I did as well. Oh, did you still play it? God, it's those kind of people, Mark. Do you, do you remember the cover, the Zig Zig Sputnik cover? It said something like, um, the future of rock and roll, a, a load of old cods wallet, wasn't it? <laughs> it, was, um, it also shows the incredible variety. So 1986 was a really good example for me of the variety of smash hits. So you had John Lydon was on one cover. I remember that, yeah. That year, the alarm was on cover. Jesus and Mary Tone, you'd believe, was the main cover. And the variety of music then and the variety of music that was... Um, you know, went through a funnel into Smash Hits world was just absolutely vast. We, it was a magazine that had the confidence to put anyone on the cover if they're in the top thirty, oh, and you could. It's all about how you treated them and the questions you asked mm. them and the answers that Black Type gave on the letters page. It was an incredibly confident magazine to be able to feel they could put anyone on the cover, and that year I think was a prime example. And it it, it wasn't. It wasn't to last. It was uh, a few years later, and we decided that the, the indie bands didn't sell, so it was going to be boy bands or soap stars. Mm. And that's probably when it changed era, though, forever. Because if you think about the you guys, 80s era, the massive pop giants, if you like, that just spanned out and Duran and, and Frankie and all that kind of thing. And then this weird middle era where, I mean, it's you know, the House Martins that year and all this kind of thing as well. And suddenly, this, this, these few years were completely odd, utterly bizarre. The mission on the cover, God bless them. Before, <laughs> before you had PWL, Jason, Kylie, Bross, the yond. But this, this middle ground was just bizarre. And, but somehow, it sustained itself. Well, we just, had a... You know, it was Yeah, we had such a... We were so lucky because, you know, I'd been at New Musical Express just before this. Yeah. Literally across the road, the other side of Carby Street. Yeah. And all the groups that I've been writing about, Madness, Dexys, Midnight Runners, Human League, um, uh, you know, Adam and the Ants, uh, all suddenly caught the trade winds of the video boom, which yeah. is what we were riding on, and completely changed, started selling singles. Up to then, they were albums bands, believe it or not. Yeah. So we yeah. had an absolutely amazing field day, just making hay with all these groups yeah. just charging towards the singles. They had no, there was no qualms, was there, at no. all, in them doing that? There was no, no. snobbishness or anything? There was no, no well, the guitar bands sat there and licked their wounds and complained and, uh, and tried to shoot them down. But for the bands but, themselves, they were no, all no. willing to do that. No, well, no, I don't think that's quite true. No? You know, yeah. people like Blondie, you couldn't get when they were, when they were hot. You couldn't get the clash. 
You know, it was years later that you could go get those people. What you mean, Smash Hits couldn't you know? interview? You couldn't them. get them for interviews. No, they were hard to get. The only person I can remember, well, I interviewed Debbie Harry. Yeah, it was right. years later. Yeah, I'm talking about okay. when Blondie were really. Oh, right. Anyway, let's move yeah, forward. When she was down the so, dumper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and which more later? <laughs> so, and now we come. Now we, 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 have a, we have a remarkable drop in reproduction quality to. to Sorry Mark's, about this. This is entirely my fault. Mars cover, which is the only one he could find. Uh, so there is awful. However, the quality is awful. But let's be frank here. How long the did that boo, take to think up? Boo shines through, doesn't she? With, um, what you mean, Timmy Mallet in the top left-hand corner hasn't outshone her. <laughs> it is Timmy Mallet, isn't it? It's Timmy it Mallet. It is. Yeah. His collaboration with Andrew Lloyd Webber on the Itsy Bitsy Tinuini. So. Um, so we'd had the, that incredible period of 85, 86 where anyone could be on the cover. I think it wasn't even a rule that no one could smile on the cover. Wasn't that one of Steve Bush's kind of rules that he, he didn't like people I never smiling heard on the cover? <laughs> Sounds like Steve. Um, so we'd gone through that era and then the late 80s um, was a period of boy bands and soap stars. So as, as editors do, they decide that that lot don't sell very well, but this lot do. Let's keep putting that lot on the cover. And then I think what happened in 1990 with Richard Lowe as editor is they tried to claw that back and they tried to, to, to make it have the kind of 1986 variety. Mm. And, and Betty Boo was interesting as well because she, although she was a pop star, she also appealed to people older and had that kind of kitsch thing going on and was very knowing. But also there you've got At Home with Primal Scream. And that was indicative of... <laughs> at Home <laughs> with Primal Scream. Imagine that That's situation. Probably, Imagine the carnage. <laughs> In their lovely yeah. home. The, the washing Levels up hadn't been done that day. Low. <laughs> I think it's fair to say. Yeah. So it just shows the variety, and they were trying to claw back that whole thing of having the varieties. You've got S-Express, you've got uh, Bobby Gillespie. And, um, we always had that indiness, you know. Yeah. It was there really strongly for years and years. Oh, it was there right from the beginning. Indie faves. Oh, right from the beginning. We were all indie kids in my era. All of us, it was quite... So, I mean, so there's, the that's tough, where we all the tough, started. The Smiths. Oh, yeah, oh, you yeah, want to see... Yeah, yeah, yeah that, was, that was just a, a few weeks later, and again, just showed... Just, this, is the, this is the problem that Smash It's had now, because these pop stars have just gone away. The soap stars, you know, Kylie had discovered sex and dumped stock <laughs> in Waterman. Tart. <laughs> Jason Donovan had... And, and was going out with Drugs. Michael Hutchins, of course. Jason Donovan had, yeah, other things. And... Um, so we were just left with nothing. 1990, it was a load of indie pop stars yeah, who mostly didn't want to talk to us <laughs> and a load of dance DJs who They didn't want to talk to anyone, looked they? Like that. <laughs> they couldn't speak. And um, they were it was, these were dark days, my <laughs> so friends. These who, were dark who, who days. Who provided the dog? Did he turn I up? I think that was, that was dog. his dog. That was his dog. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't String not visible. visible. Oh, wait. <laughs> Ladies, can I just say Car- Caroline Grimshaw at the back there? Who Big hand. There would be no Adamski without this girl. A, br- a, a typically Grimshaw brilliant design. So, so that's, those, are, those are the various starting points uh, of different people. And so what we thought would be interesting to just talk about the personalities who are involved in the magazine. Because there's some, some people who are certainly legendary in, in our memories. And, uh, you know, probably quite a few of the readers. And, uh, obviously, present, present company accepted. And I, I'm, I'm going to go first. This is a, a terrible scan of, a, of a, an old picture that, that was in a trade magazine, or the house magazine of the, of the publisher, uh, way back in the early 80s, when uh, if this a boyish me... Uh, we won some special award from the Periodical Publishers Association. There I am, actually, 
um, telling Mark to shut up and look at the camera. <laughs> which is something I've done millions of times. Didn't it work then? It's not going to work now. Um, but the person, and there's various members of the team here, uh, and there's, there's a, a, a strange queen inflatable. That, that is, uh, we've identified that as actually came, came free with a record called News of the World by Queen in 1977. So for five years that had been hanging around in the office, that grotesque sort of Easter Island plastic statue. But uh, we're obviously very fond of it. But the person I want to draw covers, your attention to, the person I want to draw your attention to, is the person behind that figure. It was Steve Bush wearing the uh, the polo neck, I suppose. There, Steve was uh, was the the first art director of the magazine, uh, and was one of the first pe- people I met when I worked on it. And he was he come straight out of art college, and he he, he had no experience whatsoever. He knew nothing whatsoever about pop designing magazines. He ran a small, a very entrepreneurial person, and he ran a small business selling mod T-shirts out of his bedroom and somehow got this job. Nick had appointed him. And Steve's a genius, an absolute genius. Not the easiest person in the world, but an absolute genius and, and dictated loads of things about the magazine that lots of people don't notice at all, which is mainly is the whole business of the design fingerprint of the title which many people inherited and interpreted in their different ways. And, uh, you know, without Steve, and it's amazing to think, to think you can even see examples of it and the, on those covers at the back there, he changed the logo regularly without asking anybody. <laughs> just looked, he just, just came out, you've got a copy just, on the stand. Like, Hang on, <laughs> what's this? He's now put, that would have to go through marketing, absolutely. levels of marketing, <clears throat> scrutiny, and market he research. Puts, he put the word smash on, the, you know, on its side because he just felt like it. He did it handwritten. You know, he, he had some logos that were only there for one issue or something like that. He changed his mind. But he was a very strong character. Uh, not easy to, to dissuade. And also, I think Steve, Steve came, from, uh, came from a place called Gainsborough in Lincolnshire which he used to proudly say was the most boring place in Britain. And he said, this magazine is for Tracy from Gainsborough in Lincolnshire. Tracy is 15 and there is nothing going on in her life except this magazine lands every two weeks. And, uh, you know, for years, people used to talk about Tracy. You know, what will Tracy think of this? You know, so, and I think he had a terrific steer. But he was also hugely important in terms of Providing the tone of voice of the magazine, Steve used to, you know, traditionally people work at teenage magazines or music magazines, they're supposed to develop a kind of hip way of talking. Well, Steve's way of talking was the polar opposite of hip, wasn't it? It was what your granny said. We used to do uh, kind of little uh, shoots advertising Smash It's T-shirts with one of the girls in the, in, the, in the office. And he would put these fake credits up the side and say things like, styling by Tristram, uh, you can take those trousers off now, Deirdre, you've won the bet. You know, just <laughs> madness. I mean, very much the beginning of the kind of psychedelic nonsense that was to follow, you know. Yeah. Very, he's a very important guy, wasn't he? Hugely important person. So that's Steve Bush. And so... Um, David, and David, David, that Nigel Lithgow... It is, isn't it? American Idol. Him, Him yeah. Oh, it's that's Casper de, Casper de Graaf. Um, <laughs> he's called Casper de Graaf. That's a great name, is it? Casper de Graaf. And he started a magazine called New Sounds, New Styles, which I can't imagine any did. And he buy it. It lasted about three or four issues. And all the bands looked like, oh, well, the Casper looked like all the bands. And one day, do you remember Blue Rondo a la Turk? 
came into the office in all their pomp and finery, their fabulous kind of you know zoot suits, kind of box jackets. You know, I think one of them was pro- probably playing a tenor sax. I mean, I don't know. I've just probably invented that, but you know, to see Casper. That's the guy. What a great name, Casper de Graaf. Casper de Graaf. So I'm not. Hello, lying. ladies. <laughs> And so we move on now, Mark. This is to, right. yeah, this to is talk my, about your. I was going to talk about the guy. I'm, I'm in, the, in the middle there with, with a bottle of Pomia, which is sparkling uh, cider. So uh, no expenses spent on this, uh, this news opportunity here. We're celebrating some, uh, some circulation rise. You can see the NME, by the way, through, that, through the window across the street. There's the NME. You can see Paul DeNoyer uh, writing his Redskins feature uh, with, uh, with, uh, with Adrian Thrills. And, uh, and uh, Nick Ken. But anyway, on my right there is Neil Tennant, is the guy in the black uh, sweater. I'm sure you recognise him. And he was just such a major, uh, a major thing for me. Uh, Neil and I sat together and we invented all sorts of preposterous uh, fantasies. And one of them was one called um, The Dumper. We had this idea, which actually I think was a lot of truth in it, actually, which is that, um, that in pop music, um, we, we, we imagined a kind of fantasy carousel, which was known as the Giddy Carousel of Pop which had ten horses on it. It was a fairground ride. And on it, bizarrely, it's exactly the same system that Grazia magazine used to this day, because they have to have ten of their biggest stars have to be in every issue. And this is the way, there's some logic here. I'm getting a quizzical look from Mark. So we decided that the ten biggest stars of the time had to be on this imaginary giddy carousel of pop. So it would be uh, the Thompson Twins, it would be Duran Duran, it would be Japan, whoever it was, the uh, Human League. And if they had a couple of uh, flop singles in a row, they were booted off the giddy carousel of pop and they were consigned to a, 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 a dreadful location, subterranean lo- location known as the Dumper. So a terrible place lit by a bare light bulb, smelling of gas and cabbage. And we, and we became more and more obsessed. Did you remember? And I would say to Neil, you know, uh, do you think, um, you know, uh, Doug Trendle, a.k.a. Buster Blood Vessel of the beloved uh, pop group uh, Bad Manners, are still up the dumper, Neil? He would say, au contraire. <laughs> I think you'll find if you step into the dumper, past Migio's room, past Rene and Renato, <laughs> it was all that stuff, past all of the Bell Stars. <laughs> Plus, poor Al Gazan Newman, you will find, you will find the, 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 the much-loved and forgotten uh, Doug Trendle, a.k.a. Buster Blood Vessel, the burger-munching hitmaker. And that was just a wonderful fact. There were so many of those fantasies. And the other thing I remember about Neil was just he thought the whole thing was just hilarious, which it was. You know, we were just having such an amazing time. It was really nice to be reminded of that all the time. His first job, Ian Birch's first job, the other... Um, uh, he's guy on the left there, actually. He, he, Neil also invented names for everybody in the office. Uh, this girl at the front here is Samantha Archer. She's holding the other bottle there. He invented a, a fantasy television program in the 1960s called On Target with Samantha Archer. <laughs> he just thought it was really funny. And uh, there was a, girl, a group of the girls, one of the other girls were in a group called the Saturday Girls, who were like Banana Rama. You know, they kind of uh, had a kind of, kind of boxy, Laverick Grove look. But anyway, uh, Ian um, was sent off. His first job was to go off on the road with... Uh, no, it was Japan, wasn't it? He had to go with Japan. Somebody, a reader had written in saying that she was going to throw herself off the fourth uh, rail bridge if, if the rumours of Japan split were not proved untrue. And Neil had to, ra- uh, Neil had to you know, race up there and do the story. Neil's first job was Kajagugu. Do you remember? He went on the road with Kajagugu. Is that ringing any bells? And um, he came back and he said, how was it? He said, oh, the noise. The people. 
and that was about it. Yeah. But he was a terrific, a terrific part. But also, he used to make. occasionally say, I, I make pop records with my friend Chris, didn't he? Oh, well, he did. Well, we didn't yeah. take him seriously at all. No, well, he had, his friend Chris used to come in a little baseball cap and hover around in, the, uh, in, in reception. And, um, and then we, we had a Panini sticker. Do you remember the Panini stickers? You collect the stickers. They're fantastic. And we decided we'd try and advertise. We had a budget to do, was it a radio ad? I think it was a radio ad. And Neil said, I don't spend any money on the jingles. Have we got this? We have, haven't we? Yeah. This is very slick, isn't it? This is going to be, I think this is the first time this has ever been played. It was, it was a, a, a jingle written by Neil and recorded in AdVision just around the corner. Stick it on, stick it on, stick it on. today's Smash Hits. Stick it on, stick it on, stick it on, stick it on. The Smash Hits collection. Stick it on. Six free stickers. Swap them on. And one free album. Stick it on. today's Smash Hits. Stick it on. Smash Hits. Six free stickers. Pass it on. Stick it on. Isn't that great? And that was, that was his first recording, I think, which we were all very impressed with. And they, so, yeah. they, they got to go into a, fanta- into a proper recording studio, didn't they, at Vision at the top of Carnaby Street, and, and, and spend the day, you know, making that. Because it's, again, a reminder, making records was really hard to do. You know, the technology was not available and actually, just on at, your laptop. At a tangent, Neil, Neil came in one day with a cassette. Do you remember that? Were you there when he came with that cassette of his first recordings? And he was terribly nervous, and he had a song called West End Girls. And he wanted to play it to us. And one called, uh, was it Rent? I think I can't remember. And he played it. And, and he, play, he played it on a little tiny cassette machine. And the only thing we had to play it on was the answer phone. And we all thought it was, we all thought it was a bit rubbish. And I said one of them had the same uh, chords as Hanging Around by the Stranglers. And he sort of visibly winced. But, and then he told us his group was called the Pet Shop Boys. That made it worse. We couldn't believe any group called the Pet Shop Boys could possibly be successful. <laughs> I know, so, uh, and when yeah. he when he left, he got a cover, didn't he? A, a, a kind of farewell cover yes. that actually said, "Pretty well, much, wrote, you'll wrote, be back." I and wrote, I wrote something like, uh, "Why I left uh, the party on paper, TM, uh, to to, to uh, and, and then my my top pop group in inverted commas went down the dumper, and I came crawling back to ask for my job again." You know, see page 27. So, uh, sadly, he proved us wrong. No, he's not been back, well. has he? <laughs> so, OK, so that's, uh, that's Neil. And so, now, Sylvia, oh God, we're, this is, we're not talking about this, this <laughs> no-mark this here. <laughs> that one's skulking. We're talking about Tom Hibbert. <laughs> Sylvia. Ah, uh, Hibbs. Um, well, Hibbs was basically my hero, to be honest. Um, I was, I suppose, Tracy in the provinces... 15, I'm in a small, average town in Scotland. Um, the hits was my life. And I understood that this entity called Black Type was actually a real human being. And, uh, and, and, and he was called Tom Hibbert. And that was even before he even got to his interviews and all that kind of thing. Um, I just I had never... Uh, you know, but, but basically, that was my entry point into Smash Hits was the, the, the bits... And black type, but black type more than anything. Suddenly, the mist's clear, and I'm st- and, and I'm twenty, and he's sitting next to me. I'm the the new staff writer, and he's the deputy editor. And um, suddenly, I'm commissioning him to write new stories and uh, and all this kind of. It's just completely bonkers how life is. Is it? Is it not? Well, anyway, there's Hibbs. I never really knew much about him, to be honest. I didn't know how old he was. I didn't know where he came from. I heard that once he, he tested acid for a living in the 70s. I knew nothing about him. I knew, Mark, you know, you lived with that. I knew nothing about him. All I knew was that this perpetually amused man with this extraordinary personality, um, P.G. Woodhouse-esque, I, I suppose, for a general kind of vibe, 
snout permanently in his mouth, tat-tat-tat-tatting with two fingers on this typewriter, and never really actually really interacting in any other way, to be honest. Just literally having an absolutely incredibly good laugh at his own jokes all day long. <laughs> and I was thinking, should I maybe read out the Upper Bubblington Village fate to, to give you an idea? This is the kind of thing that... Um, that Hibbs was just... He never even this told... This was a grand old tra- smash its tradition that Silver's going to dig he out here. We used to write you know, a tra- he next issue trailer. He trailers. didn't even tell you what he was doing. Yeah, you know we would just I mean? invent just groups that uh, didn't he, exist. He, 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 to himself. He'd be like, Hibbs, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just making stuff up. <laughs> he would just say. Happenings was the, um, the gig guide. That's all it was. That's all we could do. That was the huge gig guide. Who was on that particular uh, um, Fortnite? Amazulu. The Mission... Chris Rhea, mm. Castle Donington, 1986, and then something called the Upper Bubblington Village Face. <laughs> August 10th, tickets 20p from Ronnie and Madge, Cucumber and Spongebag Public House, The Green Lower Bubblington, Main Tent, Reg, Reg, Snipton, Snipton and his banjo gals, Twizzle, The Complete Bastards, The Yodeling Gondoliers, Pepe and Lord Alfred, Firecracker, Firecracker Sweet, Doom, Reg, Reg Snipton and his banjo boys, Mad Goths, Herman in a Bucket, the Rita Gum Experience, Virgin Prunes Village Hall, oh sorry, Virgin Prunes Village Hall, no Virgin Prunes, next is the Village Hall. Papier Mashi for, for Infants, A Talk with Slides by Reverend Doris Two-Body, <laughs> fl- fl- flower, flower Arranging, and the Feminist Experience, Group Activity Orchestrated by De Margot Riviera, Skegness Observed, Exhibition by Local Artist Hector and Eunice Babbage, My Interesting Collection of Bits I Have Cut Out of the Local Newspaper, Viz the Bubblington Bugle Over the Years, Talk by Reg, Reg Snipton, Scotland the Brave, Caber tossing and sword dancing with your host, Jock E. Crana. He was production. Very Scottish. Uh, stalls, tombola, guess the cake, raffle, sherry glasses and trifle, strangle the monkey, throw, throw a coconut at Reg, Reg Snipton, get completely ripped off for some useless homemade flower pots by Dam, Dam Margot, Riviera, etc., etc. Note, this, this event has now been cancelled owing to lack of public interest. <laughs> <laughs> Brackets. No, it hasn't. You just made the whole thing up to fill in some space because there are hardly any groups doing gigs at this time of year. Ed, bah, rumbled, happenings. <laughs> and that Tell was me, but actually, what's that the point is that all those readers who'd love to have gone to uh, see Absolutely. some concert are desperate to know who's actually on. The entire yes. thing's been taken up by Hibbert Fantasy. Yes. Brilliant. Yes. Extraordinary stuff. So, now, now, Mark, uh, your, um, your choice. Yes. So the man on the right <laughs> is uh, Mark Andrews. Now, I, my, uh, myself and Mark started in the same week. Now, normally you'd think it's having right. two newbies both called Mark, starting the same way would be a problem when people are shouting names across an office. Not a problem at all, because he was from Australia, so it was Mac. So that's fine. I'm Mark, he's Mac. And um, I don't know, how, we, how did we find Mark Andrews? He, um, I think we, one of the team had spent some time at the Australian Smash Hits, and I think he was there, or he just kind of like, kind of rung up or something. And he, he basically, he'd been sold the dream of late 80s Smash Hits, pop stars, lots of Madonna, uh, soap stars. 
and he landed at a t- in Britain at a time when it was all indie, and he was fighting it every day of his working career from within. And um, he, he was not happy at all. This was not the dream. <laughs> he had been sold. And he was the guy who would, you know, whilst we were sitting around discussing Jesus Jones and the farm, and the Mondays, he was the one who was, uh, you know, suggesting dodgy European bands, like 24-7, they were his favourite, and more Madonna. And he, was, he just got angrier and angrier about the whole thing. And eventually, he wrote a book uh, about it. And this is actually quite entertaining, but a little bit... Uh, angry at times and um, yeah he was he was a fish out of water but very entertaining as well also my uh, my favorite moment uh, with him was um, the um, at the time uh, Betty Boo was just huge and also by default her backing singers the Booettes were pretty big as well and this uh, it was the smashes poll in his party that year and they were very pleased to have got the Bouettes to uh, DJ. They were the headline DJs at the after show party. And, um, but she could only kind of rock up at nine. You know, she couldn't be there before nine. So me and Mark had to fill. And she actually turned up early. And she was just livid. Every song we, we were playing was one that she was going to play later on. And she kept coming up to us and, you know, having a word with us and everything. And then she said, she came to us about 10 minutes before the end of our set and said, right, I need a really big kind of dance record to come out of your set into mine. It's going to need to flow. And we were just so fed up with her. We put on uh, Say Hello, Wave Goodbye by Soft Soul, the most mournful anti-disco record ever. And she was livid. But it was fine because the next year there was no burettes and everyone forgot who she was so, it was all <laughs> so uh, they, there was no need for a repeat booking there and um, but yes he was he was fighting uh, over the good fight for pop music but he was um, a fish out of water but a very entertaining one born too that. late yeah so those are those are four memorable individuals now memories of the readers as they used to be called or the kids the didn't kids. they yeah uh, Whenever anybody was asked to uh, to to say anything about them, because they were obviously a hugely important part of the of the story. Well, obviously important part of the story, and part of the reason why we're sitting here. A lot of them are here tonight. Talking talking about it, you know. That I know for you know. Whenever I talk to former editors or former people who worked on Smash Hits, they say that they turn up at functions all over the world. And the one thing that always tries to call is, I used to work on Smash Hits. There'll always be somebody in the room going, really? I used to, you know, I wrote a letter or whatever. I won a competition. Um, and so, the, you know, <laughs> the letters page itself was, you know, the, the core of the magazine, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Because the sheer amount... That's the thing I, I still find most amazing when I look back on it, is that in the in the eighties, you know, fourteen and fifteen year olds went home, did their homework, watched television, did their homework, did both together, then got out their Friends Forever notepaper and their multicolored biros, and probably with their tongue sticking out the corner of their mouth, they wrote, wrote, not typed, wrote and multi page screeds of Odd theories, inquiries. You know, you got favourite strands. Like we always used to say, we knew that you that anybody was huge when when the rumour went round that they were about to die. Yes, that that was the common playground rumour, wasn't it? But the sheer amount of posts that used to come in to smash it 
every, every fortnight was absolutely mind-boggling. Um, but I just wanted to say something about the, the reader's poll. <laughs> Did anybody fill in a reader's poll here? You busted yeah. on, yeah. Neil Tennant and I had this really pathetic thing where we used to, uh, when you advertise the reader's poll, we would say, these are the groups who have had a really good year, just to remind you and say, obviously, Nick Kershaw's had a, an absolute classic, um, soft seller back, um, you know, Human League, etc. We'd give a few clues. And we always used to say, uh, and don't forget the incredible string band. Because Neil and I, and there'd be a little picture of these tragic old uh, Celtic hippies from who we really love. And occasionally people would write in and say, I, I don't remember any of their singles at all, but this is just a sort of hilarious joke that we would foist upon the readers. But the first, when we first did a reader's poll, which was probably about 1982 or something like that, 81, 82, we couldn't believe the amount of response we got. Didn't we? I think it was 45,000 responses. And, and let me tell you this. We counted them. We counted, didn't we? Everybody in the office sat there. The big chart. All week. Sometimes at weekends. man, John Taylor. Yes. Just little, you know, going along. Still got it going on. And they're running out of paper. And people having to put, you know, annexes on the cardboard to to accommodate the number of people who wish to vote for John Taylor or, you know, Captain Sensible in some other category or whatever. It was mind-boggling, the amount of response. And we took it very seriously. My theory is that the reader's poll was the making of the magazine and it was also, in the end, the unmaking of the magazine because it eventually became so big that it turned into a television programme and where television enters, you know, death and destruction follows in its way. Light is let in on the magic. Daylight is let in on the magic. Uh, And, you know, so so what started as this utterly curious thing of people with their private fantasies in their private rooms turned into a prime-time television show with a load of 15-year-olds screaming in the Docklands Arena. You know what I mean? And, and so suddenly there was no magic left anymore. You know, it was quite plain what was going on. But it obviously at the same time, it became bigger and bigger. You know, the, the magazine became more and more famous. And, you know, there is Manana with uh, Smash It's Award, which I don't think she could ever be bothered to turn up. And no, she, get, yeah. she was never there. Please don't look at the pictures that are in the Evening Standard today, by the way. If anyone's on the tube. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Of Madonna? Topless pictures of Madonna. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, I mean, you wanted to mention the Reader's Poll as well, Mark, didn't you? Yeah, because it was, it was that, it was the, when it kind of went to the Docklands Arena, when the BBC went to Docklands Arena, the first thing you heard was the screaming noise. And that defined the, the magazine. That was Smash It's World. When you enter Smash It's World, you enter uh, the world of screaming kids. And it really just helped, I think, define the magazine as that. And then it was very difficult for people working on the magazine to kind of go into other areas confidently because we were the magazine for screaming teenagers. And that was so different from what was happening just three or four years before with those incredible covers in 1986 of Jesus and Mary Tone and John Lydon. And you're right, it, it completely changed everything. And the other thing that I still say is that it never sold one extra copy of the magazine or one more ad. It did very well for the BBC. It did very well for Harvey Goldsmith. It did very well for pop stars. Didn't do any favours for Smash Hits at all. That's the only advice I'd offer to anybody when offered a TV tie-in with a product. TV always wins, you don't. Um, 
And so, moving on, Mark, you want to say something about readers? Very quickly, just one reader I was particularly uh, attached to. This is Marshall. Does anybody remember Marshall reviewing the singles? You do? Incredible. Marshall was 11 years old. He's not here, is he? Marshall, are you here? He's probably maybe listening. If you are listening, Marshall, tremendous. Um, Various readers used to ring in. And you just got to just kind of know them and, and really trust their judgment. And they'd ring up. A couple of girls who lived in Grantham used to ring up and they'd go, uh, you know, and they would say, uh, it occurs to me to the editor, Adamant is down the dumper. They would actually, they'd got this expression by that. He's all over. And Marshall actually had an extraordinarily sharp view of what was kind of happening in pop music and what wasn't. And I remember ringing him up once and said, Marshall, sorry to bother you. Sorry, mate, you're doing your homework, yeah. So, uh, oh, it's your mum. Is Marshall there? Yes, he had some smash heads. So sorry. He's having some shepherd's pie and what she's telling I need, sorry, quite important uh, decisions going to be made here. I just, and he'd come up and say, you know, Marshall, you know, I'd say, look, I'm shaking Stevens. Is he, I mean, is he still up the dumper or is it all over? That's all over. All over. And, and the shaking Stevens would not be in the next edition of the magazine. So it's very weird that we would actually take the uh, view of readers so seriously. But then again, we were, I don't know, 27 and 28, and we, we therefore weren't completely uh, on the money as, as regards making those decisions ourselves. But I'm very fond of him, and I made him review the singles once, which I think probably ruined his life. He, was just, he was then became incredibly successful. Uh, everyone at school was, he became really notorious. And a vast number of people, I think, rather detested him because he'd been chosen to do the singles, not them. Well, because so, you're also responsible for singling out another uh, person who wasn't famous and making them famous and then making them... <laughs> Subject of public scorn. You you invented Billy Piper, didn't you? Uh, I did, yeah, yeah, I did, yeah. Come on, Billy Piper. Billy Piper. Well, this is a bit later on, but Smash Hits had some money to to produce a a television ad, and we decided we would get a girl. It was going to have no. uh, There's going to be no words at all. It's going to be a girl would walk across the screen, blowing bubble gum, and she would. But you remember this ad? And she would blow a great big bubble, and it would pop, and it would just say Smash Hits pop every fortnight. And we had three girls, and I sat in the room, and they showed me the three uh, showreels, me and Barry McElhenney, he was the editor at the time. And I said, why don't we have the, the girl with the boy's name? Because she looked fantastic, actually. And also, because it was a magazine for girls and boys. Yeah. And I thought, well, she kind of looks like a bit of a tomboy. So, well, let's have Billy Piper. So we chose Billy Piper. The ad was a huge hit. I don't think it did anything for the magazine. She then had a single out called, Because I Want To, was it called? That's right. Which is a massive hit. And uh, then the rest, then she became Billy Piper. No, but she turned Happy up, days. No, but then she turned up at the Smash Hits Pole Winners Party and was pretty much, there was a lynch mob. Yeah. Because those <laughs> girls did not like the idea of her, you know, being plucked from obscurity and being famous. It she was, was also going out with one of the big pinups of the day as well, Richie from Five as well, which oh, kind right. of didn't help things. Oh, uh, right, right, Chris right. Evans, really. Goddamn. So, pinup. so, that's the readers. And now... Pop stars who came in the office, because they did sometimes. Um, and believe it or not, on April the 5th, 1979, Jimmy Percy was on the cover of Smash Hit. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask me why, but he was. And for was some a, reason... It was punk magazine, though, in, in those days. I suppose, I suppose so. <laughs> you know what it's just, it, 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 no, Jimmy, Jimmy Percy just seems absurd on every level nowadays, <laughs> when you look back. But even then, he's quite a long way from the Hersham boys with their lace-up boots and, and corduroy, Dave, I think. And have you been to Hersham? We're going down the pub, hurry up, Harry, come on. I think he's, 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 he's really betrayed his roots with that, don't you think? But um, and so, I don't know if it was a direct result of this, but he 
I, when I was editor, I was sitting there having a sandwich, minding my own business when lunchtime, and suddenly the, the doorway to my office filled with the frame of Jimmy Percy. And he wasn't amused about something. I can't even remember what it was. We had written a very unkind thing about his new, new record, and he was very pissed. Oh, was he? He'd had two or three uh, cold drinks in a pub around the corner. And he, was, I, he actually had you up against the he wall. He pressed, pressed me against the wall and said that, you know, Smash Hits would never to write anything about him again. A wish that he got. Yeah, no, we, we, we abided by we, that. We did, actually. you know. Yeah. So that was, that was Jimmy Percy. And, and also the Human League. The Human League were a key group for Smash Hits, you know, because they were, they were really interesting and odd and everybody liked them, you know. They combined the, the indie stuff and the, and the mainstream pop stuff. And, of course, the key to the success was, you know, Suzanne and Joanne, um, you know, who, who reputedly were discovered by Phil, uh, Phil Oakey at the Crazy Daisy uh, disco in, in Sheffield, weren't they? Um, and which, uh, and which we uh, immortalised in a cartoon, the cartoon history of the human leagues. Anybody remember that? Which is in the year. It's the one of the proudest mad, mad magazine cartoonists. Yes, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. But anyway, the brilliant bit of that, I have to say, the brilliant detail, which I think might have been Dave's idea, which, which is that everybody in the Oakey household, as when Phil was, you know, a teenager, everybody had the lopsided hair. It was fantastic, and including Dad. Grandpa, the cat, and little tiny low. R- was there a parrot a, a, in a, a cage? A parrot in a cage, and a little row of a plaster ducks on the wall. Fine ducks, all had a great sprout of hair. Genius. <laughs> and anyways, there was always there was always, always arguments with the Human League about photos because they wanted to control their photographs, didn't they? And they always supplied them the wrong shape or whatever. You, you know, magazine covers have to be a certain shape. So you can get the logo above them, all that kind of stuff, and. Uh, and Keith Morton, their PR, really nice guy, Keith Morton, head of press at Virgin for years. And he eventually just got tired of passing messages back and forth. And I just turned around one lunchtime, and there's Keith in the office. And there is Phil Oaking, Joanne and Suzanne Bion, looking very, very mardy. Because we were, we were not going to use, you know, some picture or whatever. And they stood over the light box... They were one of the biggest pop groups in the world. They had number one in America, and they were prepared to devote time to standing over a bloody light box, uh, you know, holding up transparency. They they took themselves very seriously. We had described them as victims of a cruel home haircutting experiment. (laughs) And they thought they were at the cutting edge of, uh, of, you know, of of electronic dance music. So, And Phil Oakey... They they did have an issue. Phil Oakey got the wrong end of the stick because he said said you you don't want to put them on the cover because they're girls. And the truth was, we didn't want him on the cover. We wanted the girls. girls. You know, because that would have done better. Um, But anyway, so that's the Human League. But Mark... Oh, this is... I remember this very well. At the top left... Anyone remember this picture? This is Boy George. I'm sure you can tell. Boy George worked in a shop called The Foundry, which was just off of... uh, Just off of Carnage Street, wasn't it? Just about 50 yards from our front door. And uh, when the Stars on 45 records came out, and they were a huge vote, and they were just appalling. Can anyone remember these? Oh, Christ. And they were just a series of, you know, cover versions of Beatles and ABBA hits, you know, just kind of segued into the stitch, into the same ghastly metronomic pumping beat. And we thought that they were just as good. In fact, it's a very, very funny headline. Did you write that, Dave? They make them, you break them. So we took out all the stars on 45. We thought, let's let the people decide. Let's give the people their voice. We took out stars on 45 records around the central London area where people destroyed them with road drills, 
tossed them into heavy traffic, ran over them with motorbikes. And, uh, and this guy, George, we got to saw one of these records and, or hold it while Steve Bush actually saw it. Up. Anyway, we printed that picture and we got loads and loads of letters and cards, as you did. It was, that was the wonderful thing. The reaction to Smash It was so fantastic. Writing and saying, who is this guy, George? Can we see another picture? So we printed another picture. We found out his name. He said, I've got the, the, the issue at home. It says, it says George O'Dowd. Clothes seller. <laughs> Clothes seller. Uh, you know, and that, this is long before he formed... Uh, in fact, he, he did have a group. What were they called? Sex Gang Children. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that was, and he used to come in the office a lot, looking fantastic. Um, he's about six foot uh, one. He used to wear uh, ball gowns and huge, and sort of had great big dreadlocks and, and enormous, great clunking boots with bits of metal on the front. So you noticed him if you turned. You did notice him, yeah. Um, so now I've got, these are a selection of people who had different interactions with the Smash Hits office, didn't they? That Vic Reeves up here. Came for a job, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He was interviewed for the staff writer job, and uh, he didn't get it because Barry... Was it Barry who was interviewed? Yes, I think Barry, Barry McElhenney decided he wasn't funny enough for Smash It. <laughs> <laughs> and, Not um, funny enough for Smash It. <laughs> so, yeah, he didn't get the job, and he must regret it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, didn't he give it to uh, Bonnie? Miranda? Yeah, Miranda Sawyer, Miranda and then t- uh, take that. So we were, I don't want to kind of paint my, my era there as this kind of whole kind of this area where because you know there's no pop music because of course although we we went through the kind of indie kind of and dance thing then in about ninety two pop music World came back saved big time <laughs> that. with take that but at first no one was interested and um, they were dreadful Mark, they were, they, they were in the dreadful and they they were closed they were were dreadful. And they didn't get a record deal, and they were just um, PR'd by a kind of local uh, Northwest PR company and were managed by a guy who ran a local model agency, Nigel Martin Smith. And boy, they were keen. Boy, did they want to be pop stars. They would get the, they'd go in a, a van down to London and they would do gigs, they'd do a school gig during the day. They'd do, in the evening, they'd do a kind of early evening, they'd do an under-18 club. It used to be really big deal in those early 90s, under-18 club nights. They'd do an over-18 club night uh, around about kind of 10-ish, and then they'd do a gay club about one or two in the morning. And they, in the afternoon, they would go around the pop music magazines, and they were so keen, they would come into our office just to say hello, go around and meet them, and they would make everyone coffee. They would go around with a pad of post-it notes, taking everyone's order, who wants sugar, who wants oh. milk. And they would make coffee and tea for everyone. That's how keen in they, desperate they were. They were. We knew it. it was in reception, wasn't it? <laughs> they were in reception. <laughs> and then the Spice Girls story, I, I wasn't there for this, but I was certainly there for the beginning of uh, this kind of era. So um, there was this awful habit from about 1991 onwards for bands to come into the office and sing a cappella. Oh. They would come in because every, you know we were also cynical about it all. It was the view, the, you know, the songs were multi-tracked vocals. The yeah. video was spent a fortune on them, retouched photos, all that kind of thing. And the PRs would say, "Oh no, no, no! Now this lot, they can sing, and we're going to prove it to you. They're going to come into the office and they're going to sing a cappella." And it was mortifying every time it happened. It was mortifying. And then this story has become quite famous. 
And, um, but Kate Thornton, who was the editor of uh, Smashes after me, um, she, was told that these, these girls were coming in, Spice Girls, and she was so mortified by the whole thing that she hid in her back office. <laughs> and Spice Girls never forgave Kate and never really gave, forgave Smashes. And in fact, they went to uh, Top of the Pops magazine, who were our big new rival at the time. And did a load of stuff with them. In fact, Todd the Pops magazine famously gave them their nicknames. Absolutely. And had really very little to do with Smash Hits because of that moment. But, you know, it's always kind of portrayed as this thing, oh, I can't believe Kate missed out on this. This was this great moment. But I totally get it because people coming in 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 an office no bigger than the room we're in now and singing a cappella is just cringeworthy for everyone. Trying to write a headline, you look up with Hazy Fantasia standing behind you, you know, <laughs> singing John Wayne is big leggy. <laughs> I love that song. So, oh, but incidentally, b- before we go any further in terms of pop stars coming in uh, to the office, Mark, you're not going to get away with this. Two of my old Smash Hits buddies mentioned to me Alana Pele. Lana, uh, Alan Pele Al- or Lana Pele? Cross-dressing who... hardcore scouse. Crazy who, who actually lives? Who now actually lives, who actually lives two <laughs> two streets away from me? So I see him all the time. Um, I so basically, Lana Pillay or Alan Pillay was the vocalist on the Gary Clail uh, Human Nature song. Is it Alan? And and I still do not know why to this day. But came into the office. I got a call. Something. What did you do? No, the piece was really positive. And in in the apology, many years later, in a, a branch of the Sainsbury's on Tottenham Court Road, when I bumped into him, uh, he didn't mention any of it either. And his PR was still none the wiser. Yeah, he, did, he basically said, so I got a call from reception saying, <laughs> He's in reception. Uh, Alan Pillay is in reception. I thought, oh, you know, go down and see him. Naive lad just off the boat from Sheffield, as I was. And um, went to see him and he just started hitting me. And it was... I, I, I feel happy, though, because I joined a fine tradition of you with Jimmy Percy, Barry McElhenney <laughs> with Kevin Rowland from Dexys Midnight Brothers. But it... My God. And I had to be rescued by Phil Alexander, then editor of Raw magazine, later editor of Kerrang! magazine. And, um, and it went... It just sent everyone completely crazy. So the PR was on the phone, was taking me out for lunch, profusely apologising. And I still don't know to this day, apart from three years later, I bumped into him in Sainsbury's. And he started apologising. And he actually does live genuinely two streets away from me. So I see him all the time. And he's just a little sheepish every time he sees me. <laughs> as I hope he would be. But, um, yes, that, not the That is a grand though. tradition, because Barry McElhenney actually was at the, the Meldy Maker. He was Meldy Maker. Yes, and he came out the, the door was. one day. And Kevin Rowland had been waiting in an alleyway <laughs> round the corner, leapt on him, pulled his jacket over his head, which is an old, it's a real old sort of hustler's yeah. trick, isn't it? You know, yeah. and just duffed him up for a bad review. And I rather miss those days when, you know, anything, I'd rather hope that Van Morrison might a, a, attack me with a, a mallet or something. It's not the same, well, it, really? I, I have a really good story, Bob. But it shows how much it meant to them all, doesn't it? God. That we were the centre of their world. We were the mouthpiece oh, for them. them. We, were, we were the thing that their record buyers, potential record buyers, you know, treat us as their Bible. Yeah. And um, it just shows how important it was to them. We were, you know, the, these publications were at the centre of that kind of world. They were so unhappy with us, whatever we'd done. They wanted the, to punch There's us. nothing more chilling than the phone call from reception that says, there's so-and-so in the... And I speak as somebody who, when I, I wrote a thing for Sounds, and I was in Sounds offices many years... Well, around about the time, time I started Smash Hits, 
and reception rang upstairs and said, there's the Dutch Hells Angels down here to see you. <laughs> to see you. And I had to go down and there was a deputation from the Dutch Hells Angels who had, who had taken exception to something I'd said in the piece I'd written about Lena Lovitch and Nina Hagen in sound. <laughs> but let me tell you, what I said is neither, neither here nor there, but a deputation from the Dutch Hells Angels, they'd taken the trouble to come all the go way all from the way. Holland. <laughs> Sounds magazine. <laughs> made the way to Longacre to frighten the life out of me, but they certainly did that. Anyway, most memorable smash hits interviewee. I go first. Um, Relax, ladies. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, you know, the police were obviously huge... In the, in the early days when I was editor of Smash Hits, they were absolutely immense on every level. And uh, I, was, I was the kind of police correspondent. Mark was the jam correspondent, weren't you? That's very much how it kind of worked out, that you develop relationships with people. And what you'd, you'd always do with these groups, particularly if there were three members, is you'd do a three-part three part profile. Yeah. We'll do each member of the group, which the group love. PR loves it because he gets to reward the kind of less glamorous member of the group. What the PR doesn't mention to him is that the lead singer will get a two-part piece and the other two will only get, be lucky to get a piece, a piece each. And so I did all, the, I did all this, and this, those were in the days when you, if you wanted to interview Sting, you went to a basement flat in Bayswater, just off Queensway, and, uh, you, you know, you, you went down the steps and there was just him, his wife, and a small child. There was no PR, there was no mind or whatever. And the great thing about the police was that they, they um, you know, there was no pretense about them at all. You know, they, they struck me as the last group. There was no artifice at all. They, you know, they were just very talented. You know what I mean? And they could, they could deal with it. They didn't need dressing up. You know, if you look at the videos, it's just somebody pointing a camera at them and they're fortunate in the fact that one of them happens to be extraordinarily good-looking. And, uh, and he, lived, he looked like that in those days without benefit of personal trainers or macrobiotic diets or whatever. That's just the way he was. And so he was the most confident pop star I've ever met at all, you know. Because you, you couldn't put anything over on him at all. He, most pop stars you deal with, they're slightly frightened of you. Because they know what their insecurity is, and they're frightened that you'll, you'll point it out. Sting's insecurity is he overdoes it, you know, which has been pointed out many times. But anyway, I once interviewed him. To give an idea of his massive confidence, I once interviewed him after a show at the Tower Theatre in Philadelphia. He said, yeah, I'll do the interview after the show. And then years later, I realised why. You know, the musicians come off stage, and this is when they get into trouble with drink and drugs, because they can't come down, because nothing is quite like what they've had on stage. Well, the next best thing is a journalist sitting there writing down every word that they're saying. And so Sting chose to do this interview. I went to his dressing room, and he was having a shower in the corner. <laughs> and he said, oh, just sit there. you know." And then he came out swathed in towels and, you know, white dressing gowns or whatever, and proceeded to dry himself right in front of me as I said, so when do you think the new album will be out or whatever? And, you know... If the Sting Todger had been on display, I would have been far too well-mannered well to look at it, you know what I mean? But it was the most staggering display of male confidence I've ever seen in my life, you know what I mean? Maybe he didn't keep this for the correspondent from Elle magazine or something. It's a bit of a waste. <laughs> so that was mine. That was, that's Sting. Um, Mark. 
Oh, well, yeah, I was... <laughs> From the well, sublime. I, 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 actually, I've got a, a lot, but I, I can't possibly uh, tell you. I, I had a very good time. With, uh, I was also an Adam and the Ants uh, correspondent. Travel with them to uh, Aix-en-Provence, which is very funny. Watching them put their white... They were a white stripe on before he went on stage. And uh, Can I interrupt, Mark? You didn't travel with them to Aix-en-Provence. You went in pursuit of them on your own... Didn't well, that's, you? That's actually, With that's nothing true. arranged at all, no, and you took the photographs yourself. True. And the Ants were the biggest group. This was 1981, wasn't it? And they simply wouldn't do any press. And uh, I, I think we were so we were so loyal to the readership that I paid out of my own money to fly to Aix en Provence where they were where they were performing, and having been told that they wouldn't do an interview, and simply arrived at the dressing room door, and they were just so astonished that someone had bothered. I said, "I'm going to do the interview," and they also wouldn't do any pictures. I you took a reel the of film. And we got two issues out of it, didn't we? But they, uh, yeah, I was the sixth, sixth ant. Marco, Merrick, uh, Terry Lee, Lee uh, Gary, Gary Tibbs, Tibbs, yours truly, and Mark Allen for a brief period of time. That's quite scandalous. And if you, find that, I, if you find that issue, there's a wonderful picture in it of Marco Peroni that Marco had insisted... He didn't turn up to my photo shoot. He insisted he was going to take a picture of Marco Peroni. And Marco Peroni wouldn't get out of bed. And so Mark went to his room, room and took got a picture in. Sitting in there's bed, a picture of Marco Peroni sitting up in bed looking so pissed off. Oh, that was brilliant. <laughs> Mark did, is refusing to go back without taking I, a picture. I did meet, Meatloaf, which well, that's too long a story, but Meatloaf, I was in his house the day that his house was repossessed by... You know his story... <laughs> Was repossessed by his uh, his uh, producer Jim Steinman, and to see him charging down the stairs, he was having a bath when this news was relayed to him. Charging down the stairs, taking the stairs five at a time, a twenty-five stone man in his underpants. That was good. Diana Ross was good. We had to call Miss Ross. I remember interviewing Miss Ross. Um, there were millions of others, but no, the one I was going to just mention was this because. What actually happened, you can't really talk about Jimmy Savile, but I thought I would talk about Jimmy Savile this evening <laughs> because we, I was so desperate for publicity when I was the editor that when you're offered the Jimmy Savile, Jim, Jim Will Fix It show, because a girl had written to Jim Will Fix It saying, could you be on the cover with a pop star of Smash Hits and could I make that happen? I thought this was a really good opportunity. So I, we arranged for this girl. Here she is, Miranda from Rochdale. She was, I think, 14 years old. No pop star would do this. We tried Duran Duran. We tried Samantha Ballow. We tried Amanda. Nobody. Eventually, and I'm hearing the sound of a, a, a bottom of a barrel being vigorously scraped, and we eventually got to Marilyn. Does anyone remember Marilyn? It was a sort of Boy George acolyte who had one hit single. I can't remember what it was called. And Marilyn agreed to do it. And uh, cutting a very long story short, what happens is they set these things up, and there's the day when they're do the film shoot and that's shown on the television and then you come back to the sofas where you all react to it you know very briefly three other items on the same program one was a girl who wanted to dress up as a victorian policewoman no girl wants to do that it was the kind of ludicrous thing that was foisted upon the public by the jim will fix it show who had a rather strange relationship with the armed forces there was another somebody else who wanted to be a sea cadet so there were sea cadets there there was someone else, which is quite an interesting item, actually. He wanted to try his O-level French, as it was then, by going to a restaurant in, in, in Normandy and ordering food. And so he'd gone to, to the restaurant, and then they brought over the restauranteur, you know. And so we waited um, in a green room for the programme to start, and it, which was recorded. It wasn't live, it was recorded as live. And you were in a little room, and you were not allowed to meet Jimmy Savile until you were actually on the set. But eventually, a screen flickered into life, like this one here, and there was... Jimmy Savile, so we had the Sea Cadet. Marilyn was there, and I, I'm not um, you know, going to give any lawyers any sleepless nights if I tell you that Marilyn was also a heroin addict. Actually. So, <laughs> so Marilyn's full of the old brown, stumbling around the place, annoying everybody and chatting up Sea Cadets. You know, who does your eye makeup? You know, it's, oh, I'm trying to keep c- c- control of him. And, 
and there's the girl in a Victorian police woman. And it's just an absolute there's some secret out And then eventually um I've got the, the, the restaurateur and his wife with me, and they can't speak any English at all. And I am the only person in the whole room who can speak any English. And this is the worst schoolboy French, you know. And it was the screen coming. And there was Jimmy Savile. And you forget what Jimmy Savile looked like. This was 1984, well, was it? Jimmy Savile, uh, in the actual early bit, before, he, before the programme, he was wearing a pair of pink psychedelic kind of John Lennon glasses. He had a repulsive uh, pair of, sort of shiny trousers and 200-pound trainers. He was dressed spookily, rather like a sort of 12-year-old, actually. He sat in a chair. Does anybody remember this? Jim will, Jim will fix it. He sat in a chair. If you press one button, out came a tease maid. Do you remember, with a pot and, and a cup of tea and some milk, he pressed the other button, an enormous ashtray came out with a, with a lighted cigar on it. And, of course, he talked this absolute gibberish. You know, so we, we were about to record, and suddenly Jimmy Savile moves into, into, into view uh, with his cigar going, as it happens, as it happens, now then, now then, boys and girls, ten out of ten for that. You know, and the French couple turned to me and, and just said, c'est incroyable, qu'est-ce que c'est? C'est horrible, non, c'est pas possible, c'est un homme grotesque. You know, and then the table was like, so I had to explain to them what Jimmy Savile was in kind of in French. And then I realised, and I started doing, I didn't really know what he was in English. You know, Jimmy Savile is just something that I'd lived with all my life. We'd just grown up with it, and somehow he'd just gone off on this trajectory, and we'd sort of somehow gone along with it, and except it's impossible to explain. This ludicrous man, his pink glasses, his ridiculous hair, and his ghastly trainers and his trousers, you know, going, uh, with his, with his cigar. And anyway, I go on there with this girl, and it's just the most pathetic exchange I've ever seen in my life. It's so funny. And he can't even be bothered to remember my name. He calls me Mr. Smash It. Now then, now then, Mr. Smash It. It's Mr. Music. Mr. Music. And also, he asked questions to which there was no conversation. You could only answer yes or no. So he said to this poor girl, said, now then, on that lovely day, with this lovely man, did he or did he not make your lovely day by putting you on the cover of Smash It? And to which someone said, yes or no. You can't. No, you can't you know. It was a, so patronising. And uh, I tried to get a conversation going about how they, maybe they could really produce a record and be a bit of a duo. And that, moment, and that was way off script. But anyway, that's what I remember. It was just this absolute nightmare. But it was on the cover of the... And 21 million people saw the programme. Uh, Marilyn's career, I noticed, has spiralled into complete <laughs> non-entity ever since. But, she, but we did have our moment in the sun. But didn't and, uh, she also bunk off school to go and... She bunked off school, yeah, that's right. She oh, went disappeared. She was a nightmare. God, I hope she She was a, a nightmare. You thought that was the least Sorry, of your problem. Sorry, she was a nightmare. She, when she, she said she rang... This is what an operator this girl was. She was... I said she's 14, I think she's 14, 15. She rang up from Rochdale and said, I want some cash when I get there. And we had to produce a load of spending money. So she went straight to the shops and uh, filled her boots for the exciting things in Oxford Street. And then I, you know, spent the rest of the day with, let's go through it again, shall we? Oh, from the left, Jimmy Savile. And from the right, the uh, heroin-abusing Jewish boy George acolyte, Marilyn. What a nightmare! And I had to look after them. Are we going to leave all this in? I hope we are. Yeah, it's all legal, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, pure pot for now, so people. So that's it, pure pot for now, people. That's what I remember. So, Sylvia... This well, is this is not the highest quality scam, but I think you get the idea. That was a special issue, wasn't it, that Neil... Well, you know, as you can see here, Neil Tennant popped in. Obviously, he wasn't quite as magnificently successful as he hoped he would be. He had a day off, and he edited smash hits just for a caper. Um, basically, I think... I can't even remember which single this was, uh, was involved. They were certainly sliding into the dumper. They were certainly on their way, and I was dispatched. Yes, it was yeah. certainly... Uh, 
So best, best you go off Sylv to Brussels and find out if they're actually in the dumper or not. So off I went completely green. <laughs> I, was, I was 21, I was completely green. And this was the first time I ever saw what I would see many, many times again, really, which is basically how bands just disintegrate and how it's, 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 it's a, a magnificent cliche. It's all the things that you would imagine. There is Holly Johnson in the presidential suite of some magnificent palace. There are the lads from the band in some hotel that has been so renovated, I think actually part of it was still being built. It was just glue and uh, drills and noise and hell. And Paul, the one who wasn't the lads, was just never anywhere to be seen. He just just disappeared. Holly was in his in his presidential suite being given gifts for his 27th birthday. The lads were fucking bored shitless, um, just drinking themselves into oblivion all day long. They were very pleased that someone had turned up from, from the hits. That meant perhaps the dumper wasn't quite as uh, as imminent as they thought. And they the were lads were Marco so, were, Tool, Nash and Nash, weren't they? That's, Pedro and Ped, Ped. that's right, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, I mean, they, they took me on, onto the tour bus to, to, to show me their new video, but it's fucking shit. So, so they put on some hardcore porn instead, and I couldn't cope. I, I couldn't cope. You know, and then they started writing, I mean, literally just, we won't give us your notebook and just writing. It was just penises everywhere and bosoms and all. It was just, it was just, it was just awful. Um, and then we did this interview. I, I went up to, I was summoned to Holly's room. And uh, basically, he just spelled it out. I mean, do you have it? Well, there's something... I can't probably find them anyway. Um, he basically was... I never really cared about them. I just used them to um, to get a record deal. Um, people, you know, they just wanted to get drunk and go to clubs. And here I am. It's my 27th birthday. I'm old now with his magnificent um, German art uh, works, I believe it was. His, his boyfriend Wolfgang was there. So everything was very German, very about literature and art and all these things. And the boys were just rolling, the, the, the lads were just rolling around the floor in the glue and the drills. And, <laughs> and basically, uh, Mark, it was Mark. O'Toole, as, as we called him, O'Toole, bless him, just complained and complained. He was so skint, basically, that he had to raid my minibar for all the drinks uh, and kept on, you can just, just get them to restock it, just get them to restock the whole thing, get some more drinks for us. Yeah, we're skint, man, fucking hell, we're skint, and all this kind of thing. It was, it was, it was a damn shame. They were lost. But they were basically just saying, you know, and I was saying, well, everything's falling apart here, basically, clearly it is. Um, he said, well, I wouldn't say anything was falling apart. I would say that we're going to split up at the end of this tour. It's really obvious. I mean, it just really was. So you wrote, you wrote this? I mean, Dave, seriously, I mean, it, was, it wasn't even like I was inveigling my way into their world. They were ready they were, to tell they the world. They, they, it, was, it was over. It was completely over. So this is printed. Um, it was the end of the band. I didn't hear anything else until two years ago. I am at the birthday party of uh, Carl Fish, who ex of Brother Beyond, if any of you know him. Pineapple on the head. Uh, now a very swanky PR, now Beyonce's PR. But anyway, it was Carl's birthday party, and uh, he ha- had known him for many years. And Holly Johnson just came looming towards me out of the black in this hotel bar. I remember you. You're not my favourite. <laughs> Yes. And he said, I've waited 25 years to tell you that you made the end of that band absolutely diabolical for me and for everyone else. He said it was going to be a smooth uh, landing, he said. I had eight months of absolute hell and he actually told me loads of things that I, I'm not allowed to repeat because the band still only communicate through their solicitors. 
It was like, and, and he made said, things fairly diabolical for you. Yeah, I mean, I mean, really, I mean, but, but I was bamboozled because it was. But, but I didn't make you. He said you just kept on asking me over and over and over and over and over again. Are you leaving the band? And I said, well, we, but you were. It's not as if uh, you know Wolfgang was sitting beside you. It's um, it's not as if I was wired for sound or doing anything a bit dodgy. Eventually, you answered the question, but the lads were all saying it's over anyway. Um, but he completely blamed Smash Hits. He expected you to censor it in some way. He did. He said I was completely irresponsible, and I should have realised that they were that these were difficult days, (laughs) and I was to somehow help him and in the disintegration of his uh, pop group somehow come to terms with all of this. I mean, in his presidential suite with the lads all rolling around the floor. I mean, it was. But he's risen above above it in the last twenty five years, has he? He's, 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 he's bear a grudge, does he? <laughs> but the thing is, the next morning, a grudge like a the next morning, into my email pinged uh, uh, an email which said, "Holly Johnson would like to be your friend on Facebook." <laughs> <laughs> it's not, it's not fair dues. <laughs> so. I can't believe that your story of Chesney Horse is going to be quite as dark as that, Mark. <laughs> it's well, not. <laughs> it nearly was, but it's not. Um, so, so it's 1991. There is no pop music in the world. <laughs> Take that, have yet to come along. We are desperate for cover stars. And Mike Sutar, the editor, decides that um, this guy, Chesney Hawks, who's got a song that's just rising up the top 40, called The One and Only, um, should be considered for the cover of the magazine. So I'm dispatched to interview him. And it's kind of, you know, the interview's fair enough. It's him talking about, you know, growing up in Windsor, being in bands, being a bit of a pin-up. You know, he talked about walking down Windsor High Street and pulling girls uh, left, right and centre. And, it, you know, it was, a, it was a, you know, he was a bit full of himself, but confident. But then, you know, he's, it's, it's the way it is. You know, his dad was a famous, was, Famous-ish rock star, I guess, with the tremolos. And, you know, there's nothing like sons and daughters of rock stars for confidence, often misplaced confidence, and he certainly had it. So we did the interview, and um, it was kind of fine. And then I, uh, Alex, the features editor, and uh, is uh, editing the copy, and Mike, the editor, is kind of peering over her shoulder. And they, go, they start laughing, and they go, Mark, <laughs> you'll love this. We've got this brilliant idea. Every time you mention Chesney in the piece, we're going to change it to Cheesy. Oh, God. And I was, again, just off the boat from Sheffield, I was, I was utterly horrified. It was no, like, Mark, you think this is a good idea? Mark, isn't this funny? Are you okay if we do it? It was like, we're doing this. And um, it, so the, and then they changed other bits as well, and it, it just sounds like we're kind of dis- destroying him, really, or certainly just taking the piss out of him a lot. Which is crazy, because he was our only, our one and only. Uh, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. I'm here all week. Um, our one and only pop star at the time. So it was crazy, stupidly self-defeating. But that's just kind of the way it was. And um, I heard within about two weeks of the magazine coming out that... Uh, Roger Daltrey, who had financed uh, the film that they were promoting at the time, and I think had had some involvement with the single, really had it in for me. Oh my! Really God. properly had it in for me, and I heard it from lots of different people. And then, um, and then nothing happened until about four or five years later. Would you believe? In I'm in New York. 
crossing the by the crossing at the the bottom bit of uh, Central Park uh, by the plaza. It's going to be the old jacket over the head, isn't it? Is Dexy's not that quite. Star. Kevin, uh, I'm crossing the road one way. Roger Daltrey is crossing the road the other way, and he just starts glaring at me, and and I'm like, I then just quickly scarper, and. Uh, I don't. I, I still to this day don't know whether he kind of like did an about turn and kind of headed after me, but I wasn't staying around to find out. No. He was. Was he very he frightening? Was, not, was he frightening? Well, he's, the thing is, he's about five foot two, so he's kind of not that frightening in that way. But it was a it was a frightening look because he Roger, he's Roger Daltrey. He means it, man. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And um, so yeah, so that was. I would like to say now publicly, Roger, I love you. Uh, it wasn't me and it was Mike Sutar and I've got his address absolutely give it to Soapy absolutely so to come to a close 32 years ago this week I know this because um, my eldest daughter was 32 the other day Um, that came out um, was that the first this yearbook is, or the second uh, one? I brought this in on the tube with me to have a look at it, actually. It is, did anybody buy this? It's, it's genuinely... Did you? What a great thing to get. I, I couldn't believe how... It's terribly immodest to say that it's good, but I did look at it and think, it, there's a thing where everyone has to dress up... Pop stars have to dress up as their fantasy. Yeah. You have Mary Wilson as Bette Lynch. You have Martin Gore of Depeche Mode as Sherlock Holmes. Who's Lee John? Bleach, was, I probably is in there. I'm sure in, he is. He's a Roman yeah. or something. Julius Caesar. One of the, but the best things is there's a mock-up of the cover of Smash Hits in the year 2025. And if you remember that, oh. it's got two members of Bucks Fizz on it. And the group, the group <laughs> who had done up to look like they're in their 60s or whatever. And the main uh, interview is with Hairpiece 100. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. And there's, a, and there's even some two pages of editorial inside about the year two. It's actually it's quite prophetic. Oh, it's there's, a bit, there's a bit about Sting uh, being an actor in uh, some terrible movie, which he probably is, you know. <laughs> there's a, and there was a, a Toya, as a Toya, a version of Toya's um, I Want to Be Free called I'm Out of My Tree, <laughs> a rewritten lyric. Afraid to say, I think I wrote that. <laughs> it's, it's, really good. it's good. So that came out, that came out around, and, the, and this is, this, these are from the issue of Smash Hits that appeared that week. George Michael is there in the personal file. This is the first mention of a, of a new film coming out soon called E.T. Uh, same issue, the album's review. You've got Neil Tennant writing about Princess 1999 and Bev Hillier writing about Michael Jackson's new album Thriller which is not quite as good as Off the Wall. Seven, seven, seven and a half, half out, out of ten. ten. <laughs> See me could do better. <laughs> um, there's... Dumper bound. There is, there's this, which is just an average page of bits, but I just wanted to draw attention because it, over this picture of Ian Gillen, it's got a classic smash hits headline, Gillen me softly. Yeah. <laughs> Comes I, was, I was very fond of Hit Me With Eurythmics Shtick. <laughs> Is about uh, Annie and Dave's tour date. Stop the world, I want to geld off. I want to geld off. So that, that's a page of bits. Um, this is uh, the same the issue again. Seagulls, good God. That's Mike Scores, extraordinary hairdo out of Flock of Seagulls. You know, we got a lot of hum- humorous mileage out of that yeah. uh, over the years. Uh, Simon Le Bon with his brother. And uh, now. 
Has anybody, did anybody buy a Panasonic Way during the, you know, the Panasonic Way fever? Or did you, or were you all fooled by the Sony Walkman or whatever, you know? But, you know, we did well out of advertising like that. So not everything took off. Uh, and so, and the same applied to the editorial. Um, does anybody remember the column called Barry? Which is supposed to be a spoof. Nobody does, thank God for that. It was written a by spoof me. gossip column, which was a, a live experiment to prove that spoof gossip columns never ever work, no, do they? No. 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 Um, but um, but that was the cover of that issue, which you may not Aww. have seen in that form because on the front of it he had a flexi disc, a Christmas flexi disc, which was amazingly had two sides to it. I still can't believe we managed to do that. And, and we wanted to finish by just playing you this flexi-disc, which was put together largely by Mark, OK? Do you want to say anything about it before I we start? Have to go into another room while this is just absolutely agonising. Oh, Hello. Glad you could make it. Happy Christmas. Welcome to the Smash Hits party. Dump your coat, grab a mince pie. You want pop stars? They're all here. Oh, we're in the left-hand corner. Duran Duran. One, two, one, two, three. For good King Wenceslas, the pad on the feast of Stephen. When the snow lay round about, he vanquished the Levant. Brightly shone the, brightly shone the, brightly shone the, brightly shone the moon that night, though the frost was cruel. Hi, I'm Simon. And from me, Roger, John, Nick and Andy, that's Duran Duran, we'd all like to wish you a very Merry Christmas! I basically ran across, across, across time. Well, the someone's recorder. enjoying themselves anyway, but who's that over there sitting down writing a letter? Hello, Santa. This is Adam. Of course. When you come down the chimney, be careful, because by the glass of milk there's the old uh, bear trap. That's just a little bit of a joke. If you get past and get the note, I'd like a train set, yeah, I'd like a bucket and spade... I'd like a bike. I'd like uh, three quarters of a million pound, please, in a Swiss bank account. And uh, I'd also like the tweet's greatest hit. Could be arranged. I wonder what Banana Rama wants. Hello, everyone. This is Siobhan. Wishing you a happy Christmas. Please send me a pound. And a happy Christmas from Sarah. And please send me Al Pacino and six poodles. <laughs> and this is Karen. And what I'd really love this Christmas is to sit round a table with John Denver and share a bowl of figgy pudding. <laughs> yeah, but don't eat all that trifle. Leave a little for the fun boy three. Say hello, you lot. Hello, I'm Linville Golden. I'd like to wish everyone a happy Christmas. Hello, my name is Neville, and I'd like to say happy Christmas and a brand new year. <laughs> this is Terry. What I'd really like for Christmas is a two-tone revival. I'd like to see all the old two-tone bands get together and show that perfect harmony. Well, there's no shortage of that here at the Smash Hits Christmas Party. There's lots of people still to come, so don't go away. Over now to the finishing school for Santa Clauses. Right, now you're here to learn and learn you shall. We don't want sloppy Santas, do we? No, I said, do we? No, sir. Because you got adverts, though. There's, there's also absolutely everybody's on that, you know. The, we'll we'll put that on the website and, and so that people can hear it in in its full full glory. It goes but on for how long? Is it? It's twelve minutes. Twelve minutes. It's twelve minutes. Yeah, and the amazing thing was Mark zipped around town getting all of these people to speak into what, what do you use? You use just a Walkman? Oh, you used it? You, you did it with the Ewer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And, and the amazing thing is, when you got it all, 
how we put it all together. Tell everybody. Well, I can remember, was it Trevor Dan, wasn't it? Trevor Dan was, in fact, the whistle test producer, and he was working at Radio 1. And we had absolutely no money to do it. So we did it, I think, at 3 o'clock in the morning. Am I right? It was just we snuck into the broadcasting house in the middle of the night yeah. and found and a studio. And pencils holding these reels up. Do you remember? Winding <laughs> it all around. Me just talking this absolute psychedelic gibberish because it's 3 in the morning, I don't know where we are. This kind of cartoon fantasy that we've cooked up. But it was very popular, wasn't it? It was extraordinary uh, popular. Extraordinary, and it was subsidised by Levi's and so forth. But then, like I say, the thing I can't believe, it was two-sided. It's a two-sided flexing. Double flexing. <laughs> yeah. Double flexing. So that's 32 years ago this week. Did anybody buy that issue? Anybody buy that issue? Okay. Well, look, we've talked for long enough. Are there any questions from the floor? Anybody got... Anything that they, they really want to get off their chest? Any, uh, you know, any grouses about smash hits? Anybody, you know, was owed a competition prize and didn't get it? Or anything like that? <laughs> their news agent, you know, fiddling? A toyer in Sorry. a gas station. Hi. Somebody over there. Yeah, I'm, oh, I've got a, I've got a mic. Oh, got Hello. A mic. I want to know how the phrase Uncle Disgusting got about because Uncle Disgusting's record emporium was something that I used to read about. And I want to know, I think it was a Tom Hibbert thing. Well, it was, Who still, was, was probably Uncle in your Disgusting. day, actually. That, yeah. was a, that was a Tom Hibbert thing. Because we used to um, talk about Uncle Disgusting. Which came first, I wonder, because definitely the guy who came in, and he was quite disgusting. <laughs> um, it's ridiculous, he gave us so much money for... Oh, for the guy who bought records. For the CDs lying yeah, yeah. Under, under our desks. But he was a bit of a shifty old fella. And he, he was Uncle Disgusting, um, even though he came in and, and, and just gave us all £200 every fortnight, cash in hand, with his, and, and took away a wheelbarrow of, uh, of, of CDs and 12 inches and singles and everything. I think, I mean, to, to be honest with you, I don't even really know if that is true. I think I'm that sure was that's Uncle true. Disgusting. Tom, I think Tom so. took the, the battle with uh, Smashes. I, I'd started to think of the Black Type in about 1981, yeah. which was a, which in fact we talked about earlier, which was just a ridiculous <laughs> fantasy about about uh, the Black Type was was a kind of invisible character who lived in a typewriter. It was only anything to do with pop and, music. It was, yeah, it was, it was nonsense. It was insanity. It, it answered <laughs> the letters at night and. Uh, uh, his father was a bottle of Tipex. His mother was a visual display unit. He had a really complicated family tree. And I wrote this thing for about three years, getting more and more and more psychedelic. And when I left, Tommy Hibbert took it over. Yeah. And that's where all that stuff, which Tom really went with, like a Lord Lucan of Mercury. That's where he went off as well. Dame, Dame yeah. David Bowie, I think Tom invented and he's now kind of... I mean, you open The Observer and it will be an interview with it. It'll say, yeah. the dame talked to Miranda. So, as if everyone understands it. Well, everyone does well, understand I mean, who let's, the dame let's, is. I mean, let's be clear about this. We didn't... Smash Hits didn't name the Spice Girls, but Smash Hits was the first people to call Madonna Madge. Well, well, Madge, yes. Is that I'm true? I'm sure of that, yes. I think so. Yeah, yeah. And Sir Paul, wacky thumbs well, aloft. Well, I have interviewed Paul McCartney many that times. And each time he would say, oh, OK, it's just me. Wacky macker thumbs aloft. All right, thank you. And, uh, I like to be several. Uh, <laughs> because Tom had called him wacky macker thumbs aloft. And he was not allowed to be referred to, like your cheesy hawks, he was not allowed to be referred to as Paul McCartney. He was taken out by the subs and put in wacky macker thumbs aloft, which I didn't think he enjoyed enormously, but he was stuck with it. <laughs> yes, any, Tom Hibbert. I think any, he any further questions? Another question over here. Yeah. Early this afternoon, somebody completely out of nowhere, just discussing the Beatles, referred to um, McCartney as uh, Fab Macca, Wacky Thumbs Aloft. 
And I said, oh, that's, that's an incredible coincidence. I'm going to this smash hits thing this evening. And he said, what the fuck's that? No. So well, that's, that's our point entirely. This stuff went out into common parlance. Absolutely. It just escapes, you know. I mean, Tom, Tom I think, invented the, the verb to snog. It, yes, it, it, you didn't. Prior to that, it used to be snog with snog. You snogged yeah. somebody, yeah. and yeah. we invented an incredibly complicated uh, lexicon for basically for sex and, and drink. <laughs> yeah. And so, if you were if, if Banana Rama fell out of a taxi at three o'clock in the morning, they'd been on on the harmless fizzy pop. Or the tizer, maybe the tizer. Oh, tizer, they've got the tizer. <laughs> and if they'd, uh, if uh, Siobhan uh, well, Faye was, ha- was, was having uh, 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 some kind of Ugandan relations with Bobby Bluebell, which she was, <laughs> they would be, they would be snogging she, each other, wouldn't wow. they? Yeah. So, <laughs> so well, you perhaps would, they'd unbongo, unbongo, they drink it in the Congo and all That's that as well. Right. <laughs> That's right. Any further? Sorry. Just shout. We can hear you. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Um, you did touch on um, uh, Michael Jackson's album getting seven and a half out of ten. Are there any review points that you've given that you now regret that history has not served your judgment? Jay very was well? horrible about the Nolans. Uh, uh, <laughs> I can still remember your review, Dave. If there are any Nolans listening, I won't quote it, but they'll be very. I think one out of ten was it? I can't remember honestly. No, no, we won't keep. Oh, millions! I'm sure. I, I, I don't think about them at all. I don't, you know, and and I, I I just don't think about them. You know, you you you've got to write judgments. You got to, you know, reviews tend to be too far in one direction or the other. They tend to be either too favourable or too damning. Whereas the honest response to most albums is, it's all right. It's all right if you like that kind of thing, isn't it, generally speaking? That's, that's the truth about records. You simply don't know till you live with them for a bit. Because when that record came out, I was given a cassette uh, copy of it <clears throat> and uh, listened to it a couple of times because I was interviewing Michael Jackson, and which was the last interview Michael Jackson ever did in this country uh, with a music paper. And I, I waited up till, I don't know, 2 o'clock in the morning in the office. Eventually he rang. I have a priceless cassette of this, which is so funny. And I, I ran it off for some of my next-door neighbours who then duplicated it to all their children for the whole of West London. I'd walk around, and people would open windows and go, Hi, it's magic! And just and impersonate Michael Jackson, who was bonkers, of course, in a fabulous way. But I remember thinking it wasn't very good. We all played at the office. Remember Neil Tennant? We just thought, is it as good as off the wall? Wasn't Neil, wasn't Neil the only, one of the very few people to go to the epic through a little listening party for Thriller? Yes, he was. And virtually nobody there. And virtu- virtually Just nobody Neil went. and some cheesy watts, it's some uh, peanuts and a, and a bottle of Tizer. Pretty know, much it, really. It's, you know, when these huge albums happen, there's usually no fanfare at all. It's, and when, then it's the, when they're getting a bit desperate, isn't it? I remember vividly, t- fast forward two albums, and the Michael Jackson Dangerous album is at the Café Royal, and they have these, these huge kind of tower of profiteroles yes. and things like that. We were both there. And it was, that's when, you know, there's an album that needs a lot of help. The ones that don't Absolutely. just kind of creep out there. They always make the most fuss about the, the worst records. It's, t- it's tough though, reviewing. I remember this, reviewing the singles, having to review a page of singles, 25 singles, one of my most vivid memories of working with Sylph is it was just me and her in the office one evening. She had to uh, get her singles copy in. 
and you were just going around the office listening to all these singles going, no, that's rubbish. And then she'd written reviews of 15 of them, none of which were very good. She thinks, like, I've got to review now a few that are good. And then you just listen to a dozen more and none of them were good as well. And that is, you know, there's weeks like that that are really, really I tough. remember actually reviewing um, or, or listening to MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This and thinking it was so useless. I wasn't even going to review it. Mookhammer. So I didn't. And MC Cartley. It was a huge hit. <laughs> That's so useless. I'm not. Because what happens with singles is always the way is that halfway through you start resenting the singles. Because you have to make a. You have to respond to these yes. things. And you don't so feel long. like doing it. Yeah. And you, yeah. you just hate them. So you start making cheap jokes at their expense. Yeah. Which the readers love, largely. You know. yeah. Cheap jokes are. Tom Hibbert and I, to our eternal shame, used to take the unused. I used to live with Tom Hibbert and squat in Hackney. We used to take the un, un, unreviewed singles down the bottom of the garden with a gun and throw them up there. It was called clay pigeon shooting. Toss up in the air tonight by Phil Collins and then shoot it with a rifle, which we thought was hilarious. <laughs> Good record still. Uh, one, one further question. One Any less more? copy over oh, One more. Sorry, they're there. Sorry, he's coming around. <laughs> Sorry about that. Carry on. Sorry. Oh yeah. Um, what was the most extravagant party you got invited to? Oh, Debbie Harry's uh, solo. It's exactly what we were talking about. Debbie Harry, you know, obviously massive, massive success story. Uh, Blondie, just uh, incalculable quantities. There was a brilliant documentary about it on, on BBC Four the other night. I forgot how huge they were. She made a solo album, and of course, her record company Chrysalis had to show her that they wanted Blondie to re-sign to Chrysalis Records because Blondie's contract was up and she had a record called Cuckoo. Yeah, yeah. So I, I can't imagine anybody bought... And the worst thing about it on the cover was, was Debbie Harry, literally the handsomest girl in the world, with giant metal skewers yeah. stuck through her cheeks. Nobody wants to see that. <laughs> and they had a party which had a wall of lobsters. <laughs> an actual wall where... So everybody held, there were chefs cooking gigantic... You know, spit roast oxes. There were, there were, there were champagne, and you were told to just help yourself to a lobster. I can remember not being able to reach the top of the wall to get this giant kind of five-pound lobster and stick it on a plate. It was absolutely actually that's nowhere near as extravagant as the Pet Shop Boys party. I'm now thinking, in fact, in, uh, yes. that's another story. Pet Shop Boys <laughs> had incredible parties. Did you ever go to? No. The, oh my god. <laughs> They had one in Pinewood Studios. You were there, Dave, weren't yeah, you? Yeah. Where you were met by ballerinas in um, <laughs> transparent dresses with, with flowers in this transparent plastic. I can remember this. And there was a, it was a lake. Do you remember? With a, I don't know. I think it was normally it was there all the time. I don't think they had it put in. <laughs> the giant, great kind of rave palace in a bridge over the lake. Oh, my God, it was extraordinary. What, what tends to happen with big, the bigger record company parties is you used to find that whatever your ticket was or your mm. pass, it was not quite good enough. Mm. You know, I always think that in the record business at the height of the 80s, if you'd parachuted in a courtier from the court of Louis Fifteenth. He would have entirely understood what was going on because it's all about no matter how good you are, you're not quite good enough. And so your pass is always missing one little spot or tick that means you can go through there. 
And it's, it's like, you know, it's like Russian dolls or whatever. And in the middle is one room that only the artist can go in. That's right. So you get as far as a run that had Toya Wilcox, Kid Jensen, Tommy Vance, <laughs> your Hazel O'Connor <laughs> and the bass player of the Stranglers. Yes. And you think, this is great, this yeah. is the party. And then you think, no, David Beckham's next door. There. No, there you can see David Bowie just sitting on a giant <laughs> throne, all on his own, <laughs> watching television. <laughs> Well, look, we talked for long enough. You listened for long enough. You've been a wonderful audience. I'm sure you'd like a drink. Uh, would you please show your appreciation for Sylvia Patterson, Mark Frith, Mark Allen. I've been David Hepworth. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you very much for coming. Brilliant. Hello. Glad you could make it. Happy Christmas. Welcome to the Smash Hits party. Dump your coat, grab a mince pie. You want pop stars? They're all here. Oh, we're in the left-hand corner. Duran Duran. One, two, one, two, three, four. Good to us, let's look out on the feast of Stephen. When the sleigh ran about, he vanquished and even. Brightly shone the, brightly shone the, brightly shone the, brightly shone the moon that night, though the frost was cruel. Hi, I'm Simon. And from me, Roger, John, Nick and Andy, that's Duran Duran, we'd all like to wish you a very Merry Christmas! Well, someone's enjoying themselves anyway, but who's that over there sitting down writing a letter? Hello, Santa. This is Adam. Of course it is. When you come down the chimney, be careful, because by the glass of milk there's the old uh, bear trap. That's just a little bit of a joke. If you get past and get the note, I'd like a train set, yeah, I'd like a bucket and spade... I'd like a bike. I'd like uh, three quarters of a million pound, please, in a Swiss bank account. And uh, I'd also like the tweet's greatest hit. Could be arranged. I wonder what Banana Rama wants. Hello, everyone. This is Siobhan wishing you a happy Christmas. Please send me a pound. And a happy Christmas from Sarah. And please send me Al Pacino and six poodles. <laughs> <laughs> and this is Karen. And what I'd really love this Christmas is to sit round a table with John Denver and share a bowl of figgy pudding. <laughs> yeah, but don't eat all that trifle. Leave a little for the fun boy three. Say hello, you lot. Hello, I'm Linville Golden. I'd like to wish everyone a happy Christmas. Hello, my name's Neville, and I'd like to say happy Christmas and a brand new year. <laughs> this is Terry. What I'd really like for Christmas is a two-tone revival. I'd like to see all the old two-tone bands get together and show that perfect harmony. Well, there's no shortage of that here at the Smash Hits Christmas Party. There's lots of people still to come, so don't go away. Over now to the finishing school for Santa Clauses. Right, now you're here to learn and learn you shall. We don't want sloppy Santas, do we? No. I said, do we? No, sir. Quite right. Now, listen, one, repeat after me. Ho, ho, ho. Yo-ho-ho. No, not yo-ho-ho. Ho-ho-ho, your father Christmas, not Long John Ruddy Silver. Again. Ho-ho-ho. Oh, come on, you can be jollier than that. Get some rouge onto those noses, jingle your bells. Ho-ho-ho. All right, now, after me. And what would you like for Christmas, young man? 
Black Levi's. No repeat after me. What would you like for Christmas, young man? Black Levi's. You're supposed to be asking the question, not giving the blooming answer. Yeah, but it's obvious, sir. It's a daft question. I don't care if it is a daft question where Santa Claus is not Magnus Magnusons. But Black Levi's are Levi jeans and jackets in wonderful black denim. They all want them. Every self-respecting Santa knows that. Can we, uh, adapt the question a bit? I don't care what you do as long as you say it. Now, repeat. And what do you want for Christmas, young man? And what do you want for Christmas, young man? Apart from the Black Levi's, of course, which goes without saying. Hello, this is Mary Wilson here, Miss Beehive, the Neesden Queen of Soul. Christmas means to me the parties we used to have at Uncle Harold and Auntie Sissy's across the road when the bath was filled with beer and cheese and crackers and pickled onions were all over the place. And Uncle Alf and Auntie Gloria used to dance to Bill Haley songs. And of course I used to be put upstairs and left to go to sleep on Auntie Sissy's fake fur coat. But enough of that and I'd just like to wish everyone a very happy Christmas and a happy New Year. And I hope you get just what you always wanted. Isn't that nice? Now settle down, because Captain Sensible's about to do his party piece. Christmas time is here once more. Sometimes it's fun, sometimes a bore. But don't worry what the vicars say, because they're old rotters anyway. So drink some booze and what the heck, stuff that turkey down your neck. I love you all. All right, all right, don't throw things. He's doing his best. Anyone else? How about a little verse from mid-year? No? You know the one for Christmas, Midge? Uh, have a look out the window. If it's wet, miserable, fairly pathetic, it must be Christmas. So uh, I wish you a very wet and miserable and fairly pathetic Christmas. Oh, well, be like that. Come on, let's head for the kitchen before the fun lovers hog all the peanuts. There's a few familiar faces in here. Hello, gang. It's Cheryl here from Bucks Fizz. I hope you all have a really good Christmas and New Year. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Mike. Happy Christmas, Happy New Year. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Jay. Here's to getting at least a pillowcase or even a duvet cover full of presents. Bye. Merry bunch, aren't they? Hello, this is Bobby from Bucks Fizz. I hate Christmas. <laughs> oh. Hello, this is Agneta of Abba. And this is Bjorn. And this is Benny. And we wish you all... Good jul og gott nytår. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. I say hello. My name is Chess Smash. I don't need no stinking fans, but I hope you have a happy Christmas and a gay new year. Ciao. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> this is Chris from Madness. Happy Christmas, everybody. Hello, Lee Thompson Madness. I play saxophone. Happy Christmas and happy new year. Hello, this is Sucks. Hello, this is Woody. Uh, welcome to the year of the pig, 1983. All right, mates. This is Mark saying happy Christmas. Hello, this is Mike. I play the piano. Happy Christmas. Yes, yes, well, it's just it's just warming up, this party, really. Probably get a little out of hand on the flip side, know what I mean? Uh, mind, no, mind, huh? Oh, oh, lucky it wasn't a new one. Anyway, hang on, I'll get a broom. Oh, God, there's another one. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Anyway, sorry, madam. Yeah, yeah, what? Trifle? In the trifles? Oh, that's a third one. Oh, dear, oh, dear. Yeah, don't mind me. Yeah, you're just sweeping up. What? Mince pies? Trotting them? Don't be silly. No, no. Everybody has a very nice Christmas and a very happy new year from uh, Nick Hayward. Thanks, Nick. You get all sorts here at the Smash Hits Christmas party. Now, it may be cold outside, but it's certainly hotting up in here. Anyone else want to give us a tune? 
Oh, come on in and shut that door. Right, now, who are you? I'm Boyne Bongrove with the Piranhas. I want to wish you a really Merry Christmas. I don't mean it, because you won't have a nice Christmas. No one ever does. I never do, so why should you? But if you can, despite the fact that you won't, happy Christmas. Terrific. Now, look, drink this and uh, go and pull a cracker with Lee John. Hi, Smash Hits readers. We wish you a Merry Christmas on behalf of Errol, Ashley and Lee. That's all I've got. Sorry. Has anyone around here uh, seen the police? Couldn't make it. Oh, well, where on earth are they? Boy, it's sure hot here. Uh, excuse me while I just knock the uh, sand off this microphone. Yes, this is Andy Summers in the sun-drenched island of Montserrat, where I've been forced to record yet another police album. I wish I could spend Christmas in freezing cold England. This is Stuart Copeland of the Police, wishing you all a Merry Christmas. Sting would be here as well, but we've just thrown him in the oven. We're serving him up for Christmas dinner. Meanwhile, over at the finishing school for Santas... Right. Lesson two. Would you like a teddy bear, little girl? Would you like a teddy bear, little girl? Uh, sir, is that as well as the Black Levi's? No, forget about Black Levi's. Oh, that wouldn't be fair, sir. They all want Black Levi's. I don't care. Would you like a teddy bear, little girl? I prefer Black Levi's. So would I. Well, you can't have any. Oh, sir. Look, Santa Claus dresses in a nice bright red robe, subtly edged with real wild nylon fur, not decked out for a night at the disco. Yeah, but the fur gets filthy. You're not wearing Black Levi's, and that's that. I am. What? Underneath me robe, I'm wearing some right now. You're not laughing. Are you? Are you indeed? Yep. And a jacket. Hmm. Let's have a look. Oh, hello. Glad you're back, because there's something rather exciting going on. Uh, Martin Fry, Nick Hayward and Simon Le Bon are all gathered round the piano, and there's someone very famous about to do his Les Dawson impression. This is Paul Weller speaking, but don't let that stop you enjoying yourselves. Hi, Martin. Right, Nick? Yeah, fine. Listen, I'd like to wish everyone at Smash Hits and all the readers a happy Christmas and a very, very Merry New Year. Hi, Simon. Hello, this is Boy George, not Paul Weller. And I'd like to wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Super New Year. And I'm saying Merry Christmas on behalf of Roy, Mikey, John and myself. And we all hope you become Coach Club fans by the next year. Goodbye. Ribbit. Ribbit? What's that? Oh, hang about. There's a few late arrivals. Back in a minute. Meanwhile... Right! Lesson three, and let's try to get finished before the reindeer riders of the apocalypse come and carry us all off, shall we? After me, welcome to my grotto, little girl. Welcome to you, grotty little girl. Oh, God! Something wrong, sir? His black Levi's is too tight, isn't I? Well, they were fine on me. <laughs> yes, well, I confiscated them, didn't I? But I feel naked without them. Then put your robe back on. Sean, I think you ought to give them back to him, sir. Yeah, yeah. a man should not be judged by what he wears. Quite right. Not be judged? They're about to go breaking and entering every house in the world. Somebody's bound to notice. How the hell do you think anyone's to know your father Christmas? That's easy, sir. Yeah, we'll, we'll be, be bringing them there, Black boys. Well, it's getting a bit rowdy, a bit raucous. I've seen some people sort of hanging from the Christmas tree. Uh, a lot of champagne flying around. My name is Martin Fry. Can I take this opportunity to say a happy Christmas to all Smash Hits readers? Yeah? 
Well, a happy Christmas, then. Yeah, you're right, Martin. Things certainly seem to be going with a swing, and there's someone over here who's a little bit full of the Christmas spirit. Hello. Yes, it's Toya here. <laughs> what I've done, to make up for all the punch that I've drunk, I've put bar foam into it, lard, nutmeg, and bicarbonate of soda. And now I'm thinking of calling it shampoo. <laughs> and I hope everyone's having as happy a Christmas as I'm having. <laughs> Toodaloo. Hello, this is Steve Strange. Well, I'm not yet as drunk as Toya, but no doubt later will be. And all I can say is I wish you all a very happy New Year. And quite right, too. Now, what we need is a Christmas song. Come again. No, a Christmas song. I said... Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer Had a very shiny nose And if you ever saw it You would even say it blows Chakapoo, 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 chakapoo Then one foggy Christmas Eve Santa came to your time this podcast was brought to you by the word Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.